I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have an extra special guest for you. We talked about the new hemoabdomen clinical trial that's getting kicked off at Auburn University. And today we have a guest to tell us more about that clinical trial. Dr. Sam Stewart is an emergency critical care specialist. He works with Ethos Vet Health, and he's also working with Ethos Discovery, which is a nonprofit organization. Dr. Stewart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lauren. Great to be here. So Dr. Stewart, tell us about this research. So we are currently enrolling dogs into a um, national multicenter prospective clinical trial to ultimately find a cure for hemangiosarcoma. And so we are actively looking for dogs with hemoabdomen um, that are secondary to a ruptured splenic tumor. These dogs will then uh, be able to go to one of our participating hospitals, of which we've got about 20 across the United States. Those dogs then get enrolled in the trial, at which point they get some blood and tumor samples collected, which we're doing for genomic analysis, looking at essentially the underlying DNA mutations that cause these cancers to develop. And then those dogs that are um, diagnosed with hemangiosarcoma, they'll go on to a second phase of the study, looking at some novel treatments. So we've got four different treatment protocols that we're investigating, all of those treatment protocols being based off of our understanding, an understanding of the genomics in hemangiosarcoma. So they're all drugs that target those various genetic mutations that we know exist. And then we're following those dogs out of the course of a year, seeing if we can start getting some longer uh, survival times and longer we call progression-free survival times, so survival times without evidence of recurrence. Um, and so that's where we're currently at. And we're roughly right around the halfway point. We're looking to be about a 400-dog total study, um, and we're just shy of about 200 so far. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about tailoring the treatment to the genome, do you mean uh, mutations that you're seeing in the dog's DNA or in the tumor cells? Good question. We're, we're looking at both. Um, okay. Specifically, when we're talking about the treatment side of it, we're looking at the tumor DNA. Um, and so the study that we're talking about right now is called Ethos Push. Prior to Ethos Push, we actually had launched a previous study called the CHAMP study, um, the canine hemangiosarcoma molecular profiling study. And that trial uh, looked at the actual genomic landscape of hemangiosarcoma tumors. And so what we were doing was saying, well, what are those mutations that are there? And therefore, when we ultimately know we're going to launch the Ethos Push trial, what are the drugs that we should be building into those randomized groups that we're treating? Um, and so that's how we picked the drugs that we picked for Ethos Push was based off of our previous work in this disease. That is the coolest. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. We've gone over this a little bit on the podcast already, but I'm just going to read from the press release about the study, and we're going to kind of break it down into parts so that you can tell us more about each section. Sure. The first section I'd like to start with is the part about kind of like the study rationale. Um, and it says, approximately 30 to 40% of older large breed dogs with hemoabdomen have benign tumors that are cured with surgery alone. Until now, we had been misled by retrospective studies that predicted a much lower rate of benign tumors of the spleen. Now, that is really exciting and interesting information. And so my first question is, how does this fit with sort of the the paradigm, the, the two-thirds rule that we learned in veterinary oncology? Two-thirds of splenic masses are malignant or cancerous, and two-thirds of those malignant tumors are hemangiosarcoma. 
does that still apply? So it's it's close for sure. Um, You know, the when you look at the previous retrospective literature, there was like the the two thirds, two thirds rule that we all learned. Um, But there's a lot of other papers that also quote much higher prevalences than that. So it's all over the board. Some some there's one paper that we look at that actually reported an incidence rate of 96 percent of angiosarcoma, which is kind of astronomical. We I think we all know it's fairly unrealistic, but (laughs) those papers are out there. Um, and the thing is, a lot of owners will search for those papers and they'll find them. And so then the owners kind of get that as as a little bit misleading. Sure. And so what we're noticing with an ethos push, and we're combining ethos push with the data from that previous study, which is CHAMP, um, because they're, we enroll dogs the same way. So all dogs are prospectively collected in the same fashion. Um, and when you look at them all together, we're getting pretty much across the board incidence of hemangiosarcoma, usually between 55 and 60%. Um, so the benign rate's been hanging out between 35 and 40 percent. Um, but what's been interesting is depending on when we take the snapshot of our group, um, you know, sometimes it's actually more of a 50-50 ratio. Hmm. Kind of over time, it seems to be settling out around like the 60-40. But there have been times where it's been 50-50. And so you have kind of a question, well, if I was going to put a range to how frequently the dogs are managers coma, I would say 50 to 60 percent. Gotcha. And if I was to put a range on benign, I would say 40 to 50 percent. Um, you know, when you look at numbers like that and you're talking to an owner trying to make this decision of do I treat or, or do I euthanize, to me saying, you know, as a 40 to 50 percent chance your dog's going to have benign disease, you know, that would lean me towards wanting to go for surgery and getting treatment as opposed to if you told me, oh, you know, there's, you know, maybe a, a 20 to 30 percent chance. So, Dr. Stewart, does that ratio change uh, depending on if the mass is ruptured or not? Um, so there is evidence to suggest it changes. So we don't. Um, have a lot of data to go off of again. It's a lot of our previous retrospective data um, where there are suggestions that tumor rupture has been associated with a characteristic of a cancerous lesion. Now, that being said, you know, all 100% of the patients in our study are ruptured tumors. So we, we only do um, tumor ruptures um, for, for enrollment. Um, and a big reason that we did that is that we had actually done a pilot study even before the CHAMP study that I just told you guys about. Even prior to that, we did a pilot where any dog with a splenic tumor ruptured or not were eligible to come in. Naturally, we enrolled mostly non-ruptured splenic tumors, um, but they were all coming back to be benign, which is great for the dogs. You know, for us trying to pilot the study, we needed we needed hemangiosarcoma cases. And so because it was known that tumor rupture is a characteristic of hemangiosarcoma, um, that's why we made that one of the inclusion criteria for our study. But um, in terms of how correlated, I don't think we fully know, but there is suggestions that it's a characteristic. Okay. In the uh, promotional materials for the clinical trial, uh, there's a statement that over 95% of dogs recover from surgery and are discharged in under 48 hours. And I think that's an amazing statistic. And I was wondering, does that data take into account uh, splenectomies performed in general practice as well, or is this splenectomy like with a specialist? All of our um, hospitals that enroll are, are ethos hospitals, so they're all specialty. Um, so it is probably a little bit biased towards the specialty side. Um, you know, with that being said, you know, splenectomies are a fairly straightforward, kind of commonplace surgery. So I, I suspect that probably the success rate and discharge rate would be quite similar in a, in a general practice. So I, I wouldn't think that we would see a, a huge difference. So as far as eligibility goes, so any dog with hemoabdomen secondary to rupture splenic tumor is eligible? Uh, yep. So uh, pretty much the main requirement for eligibility is a hemoabdomen. 
really the goal would be for it to be secondary to a, a splenic tumor. Um, we recognize it's not always super easy to, to tell before surgery, but as long as there's a, a modicum of, of confidence that it's splenic, those dogs would be eligible. The only real exclusion criteria we have, I'd say there's really one main one, potentially two that dogs could fall under. Um, one would be dogs with evidence of potential pulmonary metastasis. So um, all these dogs would have chest uh, radiographs taken prior to surgery. The greater majority of them are clear and are fine, but there's that occasional one where it's a further progressed dog you know, than what, what most are at that time of diagnosis, and there is evidence of metastasis in there. They're not eligible. The only other group that's ineligible are dogs that already have pre-existing cancer diagnoses and are currently receiving uh, chemotherapy. But again, that's that's probably not going to be a, a very big percentage of these guys. Say you're, you know, you're a veterinarian out there in, uh, you know, that's close to one of these uh, participating facilities and you get the hemoabdomen case in and you talk to the owner and they're like, I want to, yes, I'm, I'm up for it. I want to be enrolled in the clinical trial. And, and we're like, okay, we got to get you over to the specialty hospital. Taking radiographs before you send them over is necessary, it sounds like. So yes, yeah, so they can either be before you send them over or they can do them at the hospital. Um, you know, a lot of times when it's done at the hospital, um, at, at the, the participating hospital, uh, most of those facilities have a radiologist right there in the building or or really close by. So it's very easy for them to to get the readout real quick and say, yep, clear, we're we're good to proceed. You know, there are those people that say, well, if the if there's evidence of metastasis and I know that the dog wouldn't be eligible, I, I probably wouldn't do surgery. And so for some owners that might mean they don't want to have to drive all the way to a participating hospital to then find out their dog's not eligible. Um so in those cases they can have rad the, the res taken before they get referred over just to make sure. I will say out of all of the dogs that we've had, there's only, you know, out of almost 200, there's only been one or two that have had uh, pulmonary metastasis pre-op. Oh, wow. So um, I would say it's pretty unlikely. So if, if it's easier for someone to say, you know what, I'll just send them knowing that the x-rays will get taken at the at the hospital, then that that's perfectly fine. So um, if they were taken beforehand, we'll have the radiologist take a look at the ones that were taken beforehand, you know, assuming that they're good enough quality for us to confidently enough confirm there's no metastasis. So that would be the, the key factor is they have to be good enough three view rads that we'll be able to confidently say there's no no mets gotcha so we need really well positioned and clinically diagnostic quality radiographs three uh three views left lateral right lateral <laughs> vd yep you got it perfect and so it sounds kind of like the decision about whether to do that at your general practice or your emergency clinic or, or wherever the dog might be diagnosed with the hemoabdomen is going to kind of depend on things like how far of a drive it is. Like if it's 10 minutes up the road, that's no big deal. But if we're trying to send someone three hours, you know, that's a, a much bigger trip to make. So it sounds like that you kind of play it by ear depending on how the owner wants to go. Right. I'd say it's very situa situationally dependent and very owner dependent. Um, yeah. So I would say that's, I'd say most people end up just referring to the referral hospital and, um, and getting the, the x-rays taken there. But um, you know, again, it's just going to depend on, on what the owner is set up for. For patients that present with a hemoabdomen and that hemoabdomen appears to be related to a ruptured splenic tumor, there is some cost assistance if the patient is enrolled in the clinical trial and has the surgery performed at the participating hospital. Correct. Yep. So, okay. you know, average cost of a, of a splenectomy, and this is going to vary widely from hospital to hospital, state to state. Sure. Um, but I would say kind of standard falls somewhere in a three thousand to six thousand dollar range, you know, especially in a, a referral hospital. I would say that's a, a pretty common range for it to fall within. 
you know, and for us with any of those push, you know, we recognize we want to try to encourage as many dogs to enroll as possible because even if they have benign tumors, there's still genomic data in those benign tumors that are, are very valuable for us. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're able to help those patients out since they're helping us out. Um, and so what we're, what we're able to do is to get $1,000 that we contribute to that cost of surgery. And that's for every patient that's enrolled, uh, whether it ends up being benign, uh, hemangiosarcoma, other malignancy, um, all those patients will get at least $1,000 that we'll be able to contribute towards their bill. That's amazing. I, I really am excited about that. You know, it won't make the cost of surgery free, you know, but, uh, but that's a significant help. And I think might encourage uh, more pet owners to, um, you know, to, to move forward with treatment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Now, if, um, so you've got the hemoabdomen patient, you look with the ultrasound and you're like, Ooh, I think it's on the spleen, but I'm not a boarded radiologist, you know, and that kind of thing. And we get all the <laughs> way there. It ends up being uh, like a liver tumor or something like that. Um, is the assistance, does that still apply or is it, only if it ends up truly being the spleen. Yeah, so it kind of depends on what stage you find out. So if they if they get to their okay. referral hospital and their referral hospital says, you know, let's do a, a radiologist ultrasound prior to surgery, and on that we can see very clearly this isn't, you know, it's, it's not a splenic tumor, it's, you know, uh, it's liver or it's uh, you know, renal or something like that, um, then at that point, yeah, the dog unfortunately would, would, would fall out and wouldn't be able to be in the study. Yeah. Uh, now, say it's a big splenic tumor and an ultrasound, even with a radiologist, we can't tell whether it's liver or spleen, which happens. Sure. If that dog gets into surgery and then in surgery it's found out to be the liver, it's it's technically out of the study. However, the owner has already now consented to going towards surgery, has consented to a large cost with the hope that it was gonna be, you know, it was gonna be able to be in the study. And with it now not being in the study, that kind of does kind of then bring the owner back. But because they've already made so much effort to get to that point, we're still honoring the one thousand dollars. Um so gotcha. they would still get it. Um, gotcha. But the dog wouldn't continue on in the trial. So the surgical part of the study, that's the first part. What can you tell us about the second part? So, yeah, so the, as we talked about before, the first section of the study is really just about getting those tumor samples collected, some blood samples collected. And that's pretty much, that's all in that, that first phase. Those dogs that get benign disease um, that comes back on their histopath reports, that's great for them, you know, cured, they get to go home, they're, they're no longer in the trial. But for those dogs that get uh, diagnosed with hemangiosarcoma, we do have a second phase of the trials they can go into, and that's where they're randomly allocated into one of these four treatment groups that we have within the trial. Each of those treatment groups has a different drug protocol that they get, like I said before, all genomically selected based off of the hemangiosarcoma genomic landscape. Um, and the nice thing about the second phase of the trial, because this is really the meat and bones of, of what we're trying to do in this, which is trying to find a way that we can prolong life expectancy and essentially find a cure for this disease. Um, and so to us, it was really important to make sure that not only do we get the dogs that you know have hemangiosarcoma to follow through, but we support them as much as possible to make sure they can continue on the study as long as they can. Um, and so what we've done in order to make that happen is we've been able to cover 100% of the costs associated with the second phase of the trial. And so the benefit wow. to these owners and these dogs that have hemangiosarcoma is they get, you know, one, one plus years worth of follow-up with a veterinary oncologist in one of our referral hospitals and all of their chemo care covered for free. Um, we even have it built in that if their pet was to experience a side effect, um, so they had to be hospitalized because their white blood cell count dropped or something happened that was clearly a side effect of their chemo treatment. We, in addition to covering 100% of care, also have a second budget of $3,000 per dog to help cover to treat those side effects. So it kind of really helps cover these owners to make sure there is as minimal cost as possible to them 
for seeking out this care for their dogs. Gosh, that's huge. That's awesome. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. For this second part of the study, the the chemotherapy trial part, does the patient have to have had the original surgery with the participating hospital? Or is this a situation where, uh, say, maybe a general practice sees a patient for hemoabdomen, they go through the whole thing, they take the spleen out, it comes back, hemangiosarcoma. Can that dog then be enrolled in the study? So unfortunately, those cases wouldn't be able to. Okay. Um, okay. So the big reason is that those tumor samples and those blood samples that we're collecting in surgery, like I said, we were doing genomic analysis on those, and we know that we've matched these different drugs genomically to the tumors. Um, but one thing that we found in hemangiosarcoma is the number of different mutations that cause the cancer to develop. There's a ton. There's many of them. And not yeah. only that, but they vary from dog to dog. So one tumor in one dog, it can be completely different than a tumor from another dog. And so we don't know of these different protocols that we're matching. How well do they, f- do they have effect on these different kind of subtypes that these dogs have? Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that we get these genomic samples at the time of surgery, because that's what tells us what subtype is this dog, and therefore, how does it match up with the treatment we assign them to, and how did it work? Um, And uh, those genomic samples, there's a special way you have to handle it, special way you have to cut it, special preservatives, and there's a lot of training that we have to do with our staff to make sure it's done correctly. And so unfortunately, just all of the GPs in the country, there's just no way we'd be able to do it. So we we had to limit enrollment to to one of our hospitals. Yeah, that's understandable for sure. So it sounds like this is something that we really need uh, to be widely publicized because in order to be in the study, the patient need or the client, right, the patient's owner needs to be aware of the option to be on the clinical trial at the time of presentation for hemoabdomen and not after. So that's a big deal. Exactly. And so that's why we, we do quite a lot, actually, to, to promote this, um, this study. So for a lot of the listeners that have good to go to any of the major conferences, um, we speak at almost every major conference around the country. I even speak at a few international ones. You know, everything we can do, even beyond the study, just to get that word out there that, you know, benign tumors are more, maybe more frequent and more prevalent than we used to think. Um, just getting that message out there is a big deal. So yeah, all the all the promotion we can do just to talk about this disease and and talk about the research that we're doing and the research that other people are doing as well. You know, we're not even the only study out there in hemangiosarcoma. And so if anyone has an opportunity to enroll their pet in any hemangiosarcoma trial, um, that's really what we're trying to promote is getting as many dogs in the study as possible. Uh, just geographically, our listenership is sort of spread all over the country and so, and in the UK a little bit too. We are based in in North Alabama. Uh, So I think uh, when we were talking earlier, we decided that the only veterinary hospital in Alabama that's participating is Auburn University. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. How can our listeners access the list of other hospitals if they happen to be in a location other than Alabama? So the the easiest way is to go to our group's website, which is ethosdiscovery.org. Um, and on there, you'll see we have we have scientific programs in a lot of areas, even just outside of oncology. Um, but you can go find the page on, on oncology. Um, you'll see our hemangiosarcoma um, trials page within there, um, and then that'll show you Ethos Push and all of the participating all the participating hospitals that are around the country. And like I said, we're probably right around twenty um, with fairly good geographic representation. I would say the southeast is probably one of our less geographically represented, but uh, we've been working um, trying to get more hospitals. So that way we can try to cover as much of, of the continent as possible. 
So we've talked about how some dogs may not be eligible if they have pulmonary metastasis or if chemotherapy has already been given in the past 30 days. What about if they have heart involvement in, in hemangiosarcoma? So yes, unfortunately, those dogs also wouldn't be eligible. Um, we're specifically looking for what we'd say is stage two hemangiosarcoma. So stage two would be presenting with a ruptured tu- uh, tumor, um, but no evidence of, of distant metastasis at the time of, of diagnosis. And so um, the reason we're having to focus in on that group is because we know the stage three dogs, the one that have metastasis, are not going to have as long-term of a, of a good prognosis. Um, when we're trying to follow these dogs out as close to a year as much as we can for as much as they'll survive towards a year to really see how big of an impact our treatments are um, are having on those. And so we know with the stage three dogs, we're not going to see as much time as we need to really get those evaluations in. Um, we're, we've got some other studies planned and, and, and actively open that some of those stage three dogs can enroll into. Um, so that way, there's still treatment options for them. Um, but in terms of an ethos push and what we're trying to look at in that, we're having to limit it to stage two. There are some dogs that will present with a primary cardiac tumor and no splenic tumor, but we're specifically looking at the the splenic tumors, which is what the criteria was set off in our study. Well, let's talk about some logistics. So, you know, many hemoabdomen patients come in in pretty rough shape. Uh, Sometimes they're just absolutely crashing. Uh, Sometimes they've just been kind of off and you see them and you're like, oh boy, there is definitely a fluid wave in this abdomen. And then they're stable enough for transfer, but occasionally I get them in, you know, working on ER uh, where it's like, oh boy, uh, this is a super bad emergency. So is there a specific protocol that must be followed in order to qualify for admission to the study? Like if we're saying, say the owners really, really want to pursue things and they really want to be enrolled, but they're a three and a half hour drive from Auburn, what sorts of things are allowed to be done to stabilize the patient so that it can live through that type of car ride? So yeah, stabilization, pretty much anything can be done. Um, you know, there's, no, uh, there's no specifications on the study side about what gets done with these patients around um, the perioperative period. Uh, and so that can include blood transfusions, fluids, you know, all of those things are, are perfectly allowable. Um, you know, as far as the study dictates, pretty much the only thing is the collection of a blood sample and a tumor sample at the time of surgery. Um, so whatever else the dog needs, dog is, is totally able to have. Um, again, really the only thing that we say they can't have is chemo, um, which at the time of presenting the hemoabdomen, I doubt so that's the, the first thing people are reaching for. But otherwise, yeah, any, anything that dog needs to keep it stable is, is perfectly allowable. And then uh, sometimes, you know, patients, j- j- we just can't transport them. So are, is anything available for, for those guys maybe in the near future that might be beneficial or, or might allow them to, to participate in the research? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, for, for enrolling within Ethos Push, unfortunately, you know, there are those dogs that are going to be too far away or just logistically or, or safety-wise for that dog. It's just not possible to get to one of our participating hospitals. So that unfortunately does happen. And unfortunately, those dogs just wouldn't, wouldn't be able to be part of the study. Um, and so what we usually recommend to those those pet owners is to say, well, you know, let's wait. You know, did we say there's a 40, 50 percent chance it might be a benign tumor, in which case if it is, it's fantastic. You don't have to worry about it. Um, but if it ends up being hemangiosarcoma, um, I always first tell people to look into what um, clinical trials are there in hemangiosarcoma outside of what we're doing, because um, there are plenty of other ones. Um, I can probably think about four or five top of my head. I always direct people to uh, the AVMA's uh, website. They have a, if you do a Google search for AVMA clinical trials, 
Um, if you have the ability, you can probably put the URL somewhere in the, the description for the, the podcast. Sure. But that website has pretty much almost any major um, study in vet med posted on, on that um, portal. Uh, and so what you can do is you can search by um, diagnosis. So you can do a search specifically for hemangiosarcoma and see what other options there are in the country. That way, if, you know, there's maybe someone that's closer to someone that doesn't require enrollment pre-op. They're just looking for, you know, dogs with diagnosis, no surgery, part of it in the equation. Um, then those pet owners can very easily go to one of those locations and still be able to enroll in a, you know, kind of cutting edge clinical trial. If that's still not an option, then, you know, a lot of the uh, treatments, uh, including a couple of the ones that we're investigating Nito's push, you know, they are available kind of through general pharmacies. Um, so there are access ways to be able to use these exact same drugs. They just won't be part of a trial. Um, and so any, a lot of the vets, uh, veterinary oncologists around the country are familiar with these drugs and probably used them before even. Um, and so even if you can't get into one of our trials, you can know that you can go meet with a veterinary oncologist. You can probably use a protocol that's quite similar to what we are using and know that your dog is still getting the same level of care. Awesome. So if you have a patient that presents to like an emergency clinic on the weekend that has hema abdomen, what is uh, available for them? So it depends on um, the clinic that we're at. Most of the clinics that we have that are participating in the study are able to enroll 24-7. Um, so any day, any time um, should be able to enroll a patient. Um, there are a couple that just for multiple logistic reasons may have to have an, a, a set parameter time that they're able to enroll within. So we have a couple um, that can only do daytime hours, you know, sort of normal business hours, Monday through Friday. Um, and so there are dogs that might come in on the overnight or come in over on the weekends that kind of raise that question of, well, can we enroll them? I think a lot of it comes down to the stability of the dog. Um, some of these dogs can have stable hemoabdomens that you know, aren't actively severely bleeding, so you can put them on fluids, keep them supportive care um, overnight or for a day or so, and you know, they'll be fine. And that way, then they can still enroll then when it's back to the normal enrollment hours. There will be those dogs that have more serious bleeds that unfortunately just won't be able to wait that long and which, you know, they'll have to go into surgery. And, and you know, again, they just unfortunately wouldn't be able to enroll just because of the, the timing and, and logistics. But m most, most dogs, we can find a way to get them in. Tell us more about Ethos Discovery. So uh, Ethos Discovery um, is a nonprofit incubator of scientific innovation. Um, and essentially what we do is we, um, we're, we're distinct of Ethos Veterinary Health. So Ethos Veterinary Health is the network of hospitals that we launch our trials through. But Ethos Discovery, like I said, it's a standalone nonprofit. Um, what we do is we go to the Ethos doctors and say, what are your unmet needs? And an unmet need means something in clinical practice that if you had this diagnostic or you had this treatment that doesn't exist currently, you could treat your patients better. Um, and so an example would be hemangiosarcoma. We had doctors that came to us and said, well, we have this horrible disease. A, we don't have diagnostics for it. B, we don't have you know, treatments for it. Um, so to us, that's a glaring unmet need because we could do better for these patients if there was something there for that. Um, and so we find those needs. We then um, design clinical trials that we think could create a solution. So in the example of Ethos Push, where we've designed a trial that's evaluating novel treatments um, that can hopefully treat the disease better. Um, we haven't talked about it a lot, but we are looking at some um, potential diagnostic approaches we can also make to the disease, which will probably be beyond the scope of today's talk. But, um, you know, we're, look, we're kind of taking a two-faceted approach, both diagnostically and therapeutically. Um, so we design trials that will we'll find solutions, um, ultimately probably coming up with some sort of innovation that we can then put out there um, that everyone around the world, country or around the world could use um, that'll then solve that problem or solve that unmet need. 
And so we design those trials, we find scientific collaborators, you know, especially with like um, Ethos Push, you know, a lot of genomics or the ability to do some of these genomic profiling um, analyses. And we have to find groups that can help us do that. So we look for we look for collaborators. And then with us being a nonprofit, you know, we're completely donation driven. So we thankfully have a lot of really generous uh, uh, donors that we are then able to use those funds to then actually launch these trials through the Ethos hospitals and get the patients on and be able to offer these really nice incentives like what we're doing for um, Ethos Push and being able to pay for so much of the care. Um, and so that's pretty much at the core of what, what Ethos Discovery does. And so like I said, uh, our, we have a big presence in oncology, mostly hemangiosarcoma, um, but also osteosarcoma and lymphoma. I myself run a program in emergency and critical care. Um, so we do a lot of stuff with sepsis um, and emergency and critical care. We're also looking at feline uh, urethral obstructions as one of our other studies. Um, we have projects in surgery, looking at minimally invasive thoracoscopic surgeries, um, looking at TPL, TPLO quality improvement studies. Um, we're involved in the GI microbiome. Um, so a bit about that on the, the internal medicine side, looking at connections between the microbiome and uh, non-GI diseases, because we do think there's a correlation. Um, and then also uh, therapeutic studies. Um, so looking at um, drugs that we know have, uh, we say, poor oral, oral bioavailability, so poor absorption and poor distribution around the body in dogs. Um, and so mm-hmm. we're looking at ways of taking those drugs, knowing they're valuable, and trying to create novel um, formulations of them so they have improved oral bioavailability and therefore better effic- efficacy in those dogs. And so kind of giving you a pretty high level, but just broad spectrum overview of, of some of the types of things that we do within Discovery. Gosh, all of that stuff is so important and really far-reaching work that, that you're doing. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Ethos Push study. You uh, mentioned in sort of our pre-podcast notes that you're using pediatric leukemia as, as a model to base this hemangiosarcoma study on. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so that's a it's a good comparison of, of sort of what we kind of use as what, what I say is we use as the roadmap for what we're trying to do in hemangiosarcoma in dogs. So when you look at pediatric leukemia in humans, um, you know, a lot of it really first started getting recognized as an issue kind of late 60s, early 70s, you know, 50% median survival, you know, these kids were getting to maybe two years, if that go out to 10 years, you know, survival was 10%. Um, it was horrible. Horrible disease, recognized to be a horrible a horrible issue, and was um, identified as a horrible issue with a significant unmet need because we didn't have a good way to treat these, these kids. And so there was a mass sort of like mobilization of the scientific community that said, well, we need to do something about this. So we're going to make a, a lot of collaborative efforts, a lot of groups working together. Um, a lot of money went into it. A lot of different studies were launched, and they sort of had this aspirational goal of saying every single child in the country that gets diagnosed with the pediatric leukemia should get enrolled in some form of a study. Um, and so essentially that's what happened. Every kid that got diagnosed was enrolled in a study somewhere in the country. And literally from the late 60s, early 70s into, you know, even still early 70s, you know, 74, 75, that 10-year survival rate of 10% was already up to almost 50%. And now we're getting into the you know early 2000s. We're now in the 80 to 90 percent you know survival of 10 years. And now we're to today where almost it's almost rare that you see a kid die of this of, of leukemia, and almost everyone is cured. And so it's this really slow segmental improvement over time is what we're trying to achieve with hemangiosarcoma. Because right now, one year rate of survival for dogs with hemangiosarcoma is about 12 percent. So it's actually not 
that far off from where human pediatric leukemia was back in the 70s. And so we're a little bit behind where, the, you know, we're, we're now in the, the later 2000s, but we're, we, there's no reason that if we do the same type of effort of slowly trying to increase the survival rate at, you know, whatever, you know, if we're not, we're not going to say 10 year survival in dogs, but you no, know, maybe one year survival, you know, we'll slowly be able to achieve the same incremental improvement that they did. And so when you heard me talking earlier about saying, you know, a big part of what we're trying to encourage with, with our studies is not even just necessarily getting a dog to roll into ethos push. You know, if, if there, if again, if there were one of these scenarios, your dog could make it to one of our hospitals, but you are near another hospital that's doing a, a hemangiosarcoma trial that doesn't require preoperative enrollment, you, you should get that dog there too. And that's why we're trying to encourage, you know, pursue treatment. Don't, don't always have euthanasia be the immediate trigger pull because the more dogs we get you know, diagnosed with hemangiosarcoma and get into these trials, the more we're going to mirror what happened in human pediatricemia and see that survival rate that increases. One thing that we did recently with an ethos um, that we're working on publishing right now is we did a meta-analysis. So looking at other prospective studies in hemangiosarcoma, it's not many, but we looked at those that looked at dogs with stage two and stage three uh, hemangiosarcoma that had splenectomy and just standard of care doxorubicin, you know, nothing, nothing special beyond that. And so there were three papers that we were able to find that met the criteria of enrolling those types of dogs. We had a, a cohort of, I believe, 53 dogs total that, that were able to be looked at. And we, we made what's called a Kaplan-Meier survival curve. So kind of x-axis is number of years or number of months that you survive. So, you know, zero going out um, further. And then that y-axis going up is going to be the percent of patients still alive. So when you're at zero, you should start at 100%. But then as you move left, or sorry, as you move to the right on the x-axis and you get further out in time, you'd expect that that percentage would start decreasing over time and you would see less patients alive. And so what we've noticed looking at this meta-analysis of hemangiosarcoma dogs is median survival time is about five months. It's kind of a number we've all heard before. It's a pretty horrible number. It's not great. Um, and if you're an owner hearing about, oh, if you do surgery and chemotherapy, your dog might live about five months, median survival. Um, live owners wouldn't do that. But what you ignore, though, is the fact that we all focus so much on that median survival. We don't think about, well, in humans, and you go into human oncology, they don't talk about median survival. They, they sort of said that's an outdated thing. You know, we're, why are we using the median to define what we're trying to do in our patients? We should be defining that around cure. And so in pediatric leukemia with kids, rather than saying, oh, the median survival time is this, they say, oh, well, the five-year cure rate is this. And so therefore, you're looking at getting patients to this goal, not trying to say, oh, I'm just trying to get my patient better than the median. You know, that's not really the goal that we're trying to go for. It's I'm trying to go for getting my patient to this cure point here. And so in dogs, we're saying, oh, cure rate of about one year makes the most sense um, just because you know, we're diagnosing them older, disease moves faster in, in, our, in our patients. And in this meta-analysis that we did, we found that the one-year survival, like I said earlier, was around 12%. When you go out to two-year survival, it was still 12%, hmm. meaning that from one year to two hmm. years, all of the dogs that survived to one year were still alive at two years and then slowly kind of died from there. But when you're talking two years post-hemangiosarcoma diagnosis, those dogs are probably dying from something else. It's not hemangiosarcoma. And so when you see survival yeah. rate come perfectly plateaued from one year to two years at 12%, I would call that a one-year survival of 12%. And when we were talking about pediatric leukemia of a 10-year survival of around 10 to 12%, we're in the exact same scenario. And so that's why we're using pediatric leukemia as our roadmap, because we're literally starting off in a very similar place. We believe we've identified what could be a cure rate in dogs of this one-year mark. 
And now we're trying to slowly improve incrementally from there. That's uh, super mm-hmm. ambitious. And I'm really excited. Uh, and I hope that we can achieve similar success over time. Yep. Really? Yeah, me, me as well. I mean, and, and if history has taught us anything, it's that it's, it, it's completely possible. Um, it's, 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 it's time. You know, it, it's not going to be something that we're going to do in the next five years. But by doing this big effort, just like they did in leukemia, getting as many patients as possible with this, with this disease in a study, you know, there's no reason to think that we're not going to get there as well. Absolutely. We understand that there's a, a particular organization that you want to thank. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, within EV Ethos Vet Health Hospitals, you know, we are somewhat geographically restricted. So, you know, our hospitals are kind of Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and West Coast. Um, and one thing that we were wanting to do, as I was just talking about, is enroll as many dogs as possible with this disease into a study. And so one thing that we recognized was a deficiency for us is that we didn't have great geographical representation around the country. And so we would get contacted by owners through our website that would be, you know, in Alabama, that would say, we want to be able to enroll in your trial, but I'm not near one of your hospitals. What can, what can I do? And fortunately, we, you know, we, we weren't able to, to do anything other than provide, you know, suggestions and, and recommendations to help you know, their oncologist if that dog did get hemangiosarcoma. Um, and so we were looking to expand the trial beyond ethos, and we had um, uh, a very nice grant uh, um, awarded to us by the American Kennel Club Canine Health Foundation. Um, they do a lot of work already in quite a number of canine diseases, especially in the oncology world. You know, they're one of the leading um, granting groups for veterinary studies currently right now in the world. So um, we're really grateful that they took us into consideration. And so they provided us with this grant and it's allowed us to open um, an additional six hospitals outside of Ethos, specifically in wow. segments of the country that we don't have Ethos hospitals. So Auburn University being an example of one to help us get that Southern representation. Um, we've got one over in Washington State to help get some kind of Northwest, you know, and we've got uh, um, some in the uh, Missouri, Michigan, um, New Mexico, Texas. So kind of trying to hit some of the sections of country that we we ethos don't have those hospitals. And so it's been really great now. We've already enrolled quite a number of dogs through those hospitals. And those are dogs that we know we otherwise wouldn't have been able to enroll. So it's made a, a huge difference for us, a huge difference for these dogs, and really a, a huge difference for us being able to continue to work towards finding that cure. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for being willing to Mm -hmm. join us all the way from the United Kingdom to talk about this study. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Coordinating the time zones was like almost beyond my ability to comprehend. (laughs) It takes practice. (laughs) So I I appreciate your help on that. Uh, If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And we can find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.